Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of mainstream media and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub podcast, Hub Dialogues, You'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should be spending more time and attention focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Brian Dykma, Vice President of External Affairs at the Cardis Institute and author of dozens of articles and studies on a diverse range of issues, including payday loans, the non-material benefits of work, and apprenticeships, and the skilled trades. I've asked Brian to join me to talk about several topics, including his personal background, his interesting views on trade unionism, and his opposition to Quebec's Bill 21. Thanks for joining me, Brian. Thanks for having me, Sean, and I appreciate it. Let's start with some personal background. Unlike some, you didn't start your career as a think tanker by memorizing Hayek and Friedman. You started by working for a trade union. How did you go from the world of labor relations to public policy? And how has that career trajectory shaped the way you think about different policy issues? That's a good question. I I actually didn't start my career reading Hayek and Friedman, but I did read them in, in university. And as I was doing graduate school, I had a sort of choice whether or not I could was contemplating going on doing further studies. And I I decided I didn't want to. I was involved with this trade union called the CLAC, which is uh, one of the larger independent trade unions in Canada. And I was involved, I got started by actually working to get Cuban, they had an international program and they were working to get uh, Cuban trade unionists uh, out of jail. And, and, And that's how I got started. I started an undergrad, was joined as a member and started doing that and lobbied as a student in one of those sort of activist uh, roles, tried to get these Cuban trade unions out of jail and did some work on the Hill around that and worked with different parties. And one thing that I realized pretty quickly is that you can do your reading and reading really matters. And we'll talk about that later. But policy is about real people's lives, right? The the question of whether or not a trade union is uh, allowed to exist apart from the state or whether you should throw people into jail for joining a trade union affects real people's lives. The, the, the one fellow that I met and that was able to bring up, his name was Pedro Pablo Alvarez Ramos. And I had a chance to talk to him and just talk about how difficult it was living in a country where you could not join with your fellow citizens to create a union. And that's on that sort of big macro international level, right? But I also found that to be true at the very basic level, at somebody who is a PSW working at a retirement home or a long-term care home, these often these were women, uh, often they were immigrant women, and I saw the effects of public policy on their lives, and I saw the effects of public policy on my ability as a trade union organizer to organize, and I think that was it for me. It was it was a starting in the real world, and that's often you know academics don't like it when when people say the real world. I don't want to put them in opposition, but there was a very clear sense and that policy shapes people's lives on a daily basis. And my work in the trade union actually was probably the, the, the easiest way to transition back and forth between those. 
Another consequence of your, of your unique background is that it's led you to think and write extensively about the role of trade unions in the economy and our society. Why, in your view, Brian, are unions a crucial civil society institution? And what are they getting wrong these days that are precluding them from doing the important work that you think that they ought to be doing on behalf of their members? I think unions are one example of how citizens get together. They organize voluntarily, use their agency to give themselves a voice in one of the arenas where we spend a lot of our time. Most people, you know, if you do the math on, say you work an eight-hour workday or a 10-hour workday and you work five days a week, it's a lot of time in your life. And a union is an ability, uh, is an organization that gives you the ability to actually have some agency in that community. And that's why I think they're important, to be honest. I think I come from the, the Christian social tradition. We'll talk about that later. I think it's actually one that's informed the liberal social tradition in Canada as well. But at the core of that is that the worker is a human agent capable of making choices for him or herself. And I think that all too often in our workplaces, that agency of that worker is shunted aside. And so if you're somebody who cares about human agency, if you're somebody who understands the economy as a series of connected communities, a business corporation is, is not just a, a sort of utility function or anything like it's actual community with real people, real individual human beings in it, then you've got to be interested in the ways in which those human beings uh, have a voice or don't have a voice the way they influence questions of justice. Is everybody getting their due? Are they getting paid properly? Are, are disciplinary matters being dealt with in a just way? And I think that's what makes me interested in trade unions. They're a unique, they're a unique manifestation of, of human beings organized to achieve an end together. And I think one of the challenges getting to the second part of your question is that our system, our, the structure in which labor and capital are set up in North America was built in hell. So I, I go about, I say this a lot, right? So we have a system that was adopted in 1945. William Lyon Mackenzie King, I think was the sort of architect uh, of it, was very different than some of his earlier work actually on labor, which we can, you know, if we want to nerd out at some point later on, we can talk about that. But it was adopted from the Wagner Act in the United States, which was passed in the 30s. So the North American labor environment is one where you have the Americans adopting it in the midst of the Depression and the Canadians adopting it at the end of a world war. So I say it's basically built in hell. Well, one of the assumptions of that is that there's an antagonistic relationship between labor and capital. And that assumption is not, uh, it's, well, it's A, it's disputable. And I just say it's not actually true when you look at it. There always is going to be a difference between labor and capital. Their differences are not going to perfectly align or their interests are not going to always perfectly align. But I think we in North America, and I think trade unions themselves, live too much into that adversarial relationship. And that, like any other time you have a, any polarized debate, it spins the two off against each other and they actually uh, breeds a lot of suspicion and distrust. And I think that that's, I think that's true in North America. You can see that a lot of people don't actually care for unions, but I don't think that's, I don't think that's necessary. There are many other examples around the world where um, there's a more collaborative approach built into the, the legal regime about labor. We've been talking about trade unions so far, and you mentioned the importance of work in one's life. I'd like to pursue that conversation a bit further. I know few people who've spent more time than you understanding the research and scholarship on both the financial and non-financial benefits of paid work. Setting aside the obvious financial upside of work for a minute, what does the research tell us, Brian, about the sense of meaning, purpose, and self-actualization associated with work? Yeah, I think it's actually critical. And I think it's generally understood, but 
probably not understood at the depth that it could. I mean, one of the, I think one of the best things about Canadian public policy, and here's a sort of respect for our system that in Canada, where you have parties on both sides coming to some sort of consensus, I think there is actually in Canada, a consensus that pro-work policy is good, that we don't even among the left, for instance, where, where you typically associate with government programs, there aren't a lot of people on the left who say, you know, let's just pay people to not work. There's, I, and I think what that's getting at is it's it realizes that work is integral to being human being. There's this, this desire to create. There's this desire to be part of something bigger than you, to be part of a community that's actually uh, creating something socially good or socially useful. And there's some debate around that. Friedman, for instance, just says the, the purpose of a business is to maximize shareholder value. And I've got some issues with the way he defines that. But but there's this drive in us that that to, to make something, to do something. And the data are pretty clear that when that drive is thwarted or when there are barriers put in front of it, that the results are bad. So, for instance, you see all kinds of studies where they do a study where they look at one population that has sort of had its job or its employment cut off and they look at the health effects of it, for instance, and you see massively in massive increases in heart attacks, massive increase in depression, massive increases in alcohol and substance abuse, massive increases in domestic abuse. It, it, you can see that it just wreaks havoc on, on people's lives. And on the flip side, you see that, you know, people who are employed, the benefits are huge, not only to their health, uh, their well-being, uh, to their ability to contribute to the community. It's, it's interesting. There's a really interesting paper by a fellow who I wrote the paper with. His name is Morley Gunderson, who actually says that people who are working more actually tend to volunteer more as well. So there are these broader community benefits that accrue to, to those who are employed that go way beyond the financial. That's not to discount the financial at all. Of course, the financial means that you can sponsor the hockey team or the soccer team or whatever you want to you do as well and put bread on the table, sponsor the arts, etc. But there seems to be something even apart from the money that drives people to do that. And, you know, if I can just say briefly, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about sort of the women entering the workforce. And I think that's that trend has largely been a good one. Some people are, are saying, you know, well, it's a necessity thing. People are being driven to do that uh, because they can't afford to live anymore. And I'm, I'm like, well, no, actually, if you look at the data, women on, are just like anybody else actually want to do things that are good and socially useful as well. And I think that that trend of increased you know, labor force participation by women from the 50s and, and the early, like earlier times when they weren't there is actually indicative of the fact that that's an equal thing that goes across gender divides as well. So yeah, huge, hugely important. It's probably worth emphasizing, Brian. I know it's implicit in your answer, but it's worth making it explicit. It's not to say that there are certain jobs that don't come with challenges, whether they're physical or mental or some other set of circumstances. You're not idealizing every job or occupational circumstance. I think what the research says on balance, that work is a critical part of a kind of overall set of social activities that makes people feel what Arthur Brooks has called needed. And, you know, maybe just it'd be good to have you unpack that a bit. What's, the, what's Brooks's crucial insight about this sense of neededness? And perhaps to put it differently, the negative effect of people not feeling needed, both at the individual level, but collectively, as we've seen, in various advanced economies around the world in recent years. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm going to start with your earliest bit, because you're right. Not all work is created equal, right? There are, 
um, clearly slavery is unjust. And you could say, well, you're contributing something, but you're doing so in a situation which is profoundly and fundamentally unjust. And that's not the type of, I'm not saying that that's the type of work. And after all, I am a trade unionist, right? The, <laughs> my original job was to, you know, collectively bargain with people to ensure that their working conditions were just. So we're assuming that. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a sort of spectrum of justice. You can get closer to it, you can get further away from it, and, and so on. Obviously, slavery would be on the far, the far end of the unjust. But I think what you're getting at, Sean, and I think what Brooks is alluding to is the fact that human beings, this is the community stuff I was talking about earlier, human beings want to contribute to the world in some way. And, and there are different, um, uh, Morley and I in our paper, Work is About More Than Money, talk about different worldviews, sort of statements about that. There's a liberal one. Adam Smith has some views on that. Uh, the Jewish tradition has some things to say about that, Christian tradition, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we're, we're made to work. And one of the reasons we're made to work, and, the, and one of the, like, phenomenologically, if you look at it, people want to do something that is valued, and they want to be respected by somebody who, who is valued. Matthew Crawford, who, um, he's gotten some really good books on shop classes, soul crafting, has another one called The World Beyond Your Head. And he talks about that sense of satisfaction that comes when your work is recognized by somebody whose opinion you respect. And he talks a lot about, you know, electricians, for instance, you know, if somebody were to say, oh, that's a really nice job you did on that. And that person has no clue what they're talking about. You're like, ah, you know, I'll take that compliment or leave it. But, you know, if an electrician says, wow, the way you did that conduit was just perfect. And I always, I always think about this when I go to the go station going under Burlington, there's this perfect set of conduit. And I look at that and I'm like, wow, that person absolutely knew what they were doing. I think that sort of gets at the hint. We we want to be recognized, we want to be validated, and we want to do that in community with one another. And that's the sense of like, you know, when we talk about daily bread, there's something satisfying about putting bread on the table for your family, whether you're a man or a woman, and you know, or whether you're 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 making something useful that somebody says, yeah, that's that's really good, right? So say you're a, a fashion designer, or you're an architect, or you're a uh, working at Tim Hortons. There's something beautiful about handing somebody over a cup of coffee and that person's, you know, caffeine addiction is met for the day, right? Um, something very, very healthy about that. And when that's not there, when that's not there, what ends up happening is you actually see an estrangement from society and an estrangement from community. And, you know, we've seen a little bit of, of that in the in this, this pandemic as people have been laid off, you know, and, and I don't know if it's direct causally uh, related, but certainly there have been an increase in drug deaths and and so on. And Angus Deaton talks about that in terms of deaths of despair and so on. And there's arguments over the extent to which that's caused by lack of work or caused by other things. And those arguments are worth having. But I do think it's notable that if you're not able to fulfill that need, or if you're not able to actually feel needed, you 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 tend to despair. What, what's my purpose here, right? So that's, a, again, another example of that non-monetary effective work. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m., into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you, based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. 
As you were talking, Brian, I was reminded of Adam Smith's famous line in The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that we don't just want to be loved, that we want to be lovely, by which he meant we want, you know, we're in search of that kind of affirmation by the people around us. So thoughtful answer and, and, and thoughtful insights there. Um, before we move off the topic of work, one final question. We're interested in issues of public policy here at Hub Dialogues. If one, one accepts that the view that work doesn't just bring these financial benefits, but this panoply of non-financial benefits, what are the public policy implications? How can we help those who are underrepresented in the labor force, including, for instance, Canadians with disabilities, find and obtain work? I think it's it's critical that all policy examines the effect it will have, like particularly when it comes to things like income supports and things like that, the effect it will have on work. And as I said earlier, there should be a pro-work bias built into our policies. Um, and I think, I think largely, Sean, in the Canadian policy environment that's there across the political spectrum, I think both the left and the right are pro-work. I also think it's incumbent upon us to look at the fact that we can put barriers to work that may not be recognized when we first pass a policy. So wanting to look at the unintended consequences of, of some of the policies we do, particularly when it comes to income supports. We're actually doing a paper right now on disability, people with disabilities, hugely complicated because disability runs from everything from schizophrenia to a sprained ankle, right? And so there's, it's hugely complicated. But one of the things we're finding is that there are times when, at least in the Canadian environment, it appears to be that we're both not providing the income supports to those who need it and not providing the work to those who are able to work or at least providing the, the ability to work. So you've got that dual problem where you don't have the income nor do you even have the work. And I think a policy environment that is that is biased towards work and not in the deserving, in the sense of, you know, you got to earn your right to get government stuff, but in that is actually emerges out of this deeper understanding and the evidence of the humanity of work needs to be first and foremost. I think if we get into the deserving poor bit, we've actually, evidence suggests that that doesn't actually work very well. And we can talk about that. The economists, there's a whole sort of literature on that. But if you're looking at pro-work from the, from the fact that it's actually good for people, um, it actually have all kinds of other positive outcomes, health, social, et cetera, I think that's where we've got to start. And we actually spend more time doing that. And, and I, again, I just want to say shout out to the whole Canadian policy community that's actually largely in favor of that and encourage us to continue to go down that path. Okay, let's shift gears here a bit. I want to take take up something you raised earlier in the conversation, Brian. CARDIS, the CARDIS Institute, as you mentioned, is an organization shaped by its Christian ethos. How, in an increasingly secular society, can we find room for those who are shaped by an abiding religious faith to participate in the public square? See, that's a great question, and, and I, I'm going to say that there's an assumption built into that that the public square needs to find room for Christians or room for Muslims that I think is faulty. I think in a democratic society, everybody gets a room or everybody gets a—we should assume that everybody gets space unless there are significant reasons to do otherwise. And I and I, it's interesting, like if you look at the, the, the sort of death of religion and the death of religion in public spaces has long been declared— but if you look at what socio sociologists actually say, the sort of secularization thesis, uh, which is that as people get wealthier, uh, religion becomes less and less important to them, is partially true in the sense that religion, organized religion is less the case. 
But you're never going to get away from that, again, those deeper longings that people have. And everybody is shaped by those deeper longings, whether you spend the time thinking through them or not. And so I would say that in my case, I'm a Christian. Uh, I work with a lot of Jewish, Muslim, Baha'i folks as well, um, uh, Sikhs as well. We all come into the public square with an understanding of, of how those longings are fulfilled, how we should interact with one another. Certainly they've had, uh, you know, certainly they're not perfect. Uh, if you look at the history of Canada, the church, for instance, has not always acted well. And in fact, many times it's acted terribly and aided and abetted terrible things, uh, including, you know, residential schools, for instance. But I also think that the, the, the solution or the, the antidote to some of those awful things can be found in those sort of those deeper conceptions you know, if you ask yourself the question, you know, should we have more or less charity in terms of the way we engage with one another in our debates, you're probably going to lean towards that we should have more. And when you ask about what is charity, I think it sort of emerges out of some of these deeper traditions. And I think I think they've got to be there. <laughs> and I think and partially, you know, this is another thing that uh, you mentioned Tyler Cowan at the beginning. I don't know. I don't know what his faith background is. I think he's a sort of like curious agnostic, but I think you have to take seriously traditions that have 2,000 years or more of reflecting on human nature and reflecting on the way we engage with one another. And if you try to shunt that aside too quickly, I think it's going to be a loss for everybody, including those who don't share those beliefs. Now, Brian, that answer reflects, I think, it's at some level your own personal optimism. I would note, though, that there are some religious writers and public intellectuals who've argued that the current environment is hostile to religious ideas and religious people, and the safest thing for people of faith to do is to effectively withdraw from the broader society. I think, for instance, of Rod Dreyer's best-selling book, The Benedict Option. I'd be grateful for you to unpack why that presumption or tendency is wrong. Okay, so I'm firstly going to say I'm actually not optimistic. <laughs> my colleagues call me a, a golden lab uh the type of dog that's always excited and and uh, cheery but i'm not actually optimistic i think there have been recently some uh, legal decisions that have been quite wrong and i think that legal scholars who are not themselves religious have noted noted them as being wrong and so i'm not i'm not really too sanguine about religious freedom in in canada we'll talk about bill 21 later you know the sort of general acceptance of, of uh, separating people out based on their religious identity and the lack of deep concern about that in a lot of places so it doesn't make me too sanguine, Sean. So I'm, I'm actually not optimistic, but neither am I pessimistic. So I think my friend Rod is might be a bit pessimistic in the sense that, um, but I don't actually think he really is either. So, but let me just, let me say a quote, and this is going to sound weird to your listeners, but it comes from somebody who's actually who are actually religious and not just socially religious. So there's this quote from a, um, uh, an English missionary named Leslie Newbegin. He says, I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And that's true for me. So I don't really, the, the Christian is, is, is supposed to act with charity no matter the circumstances. And so I'm not positive, not negative. I just, I'm committed to a particular way of life and a particular uh, way of being charitable and loving, regardless of whether people are my enemies or my friends. And so, but if I can say something positive about Rod, I don't think what Rod is encouraging people to do, although sometimes it seems that way, and certainly sometimes he reads that way, is for people to escape. I think there's sort of tendencies of that in his thought in his book. But if you want to read him charitably, I think what he's saying is, if you believe in a certain religious tradition that differs from 
a tradition that places individual autonomy over all. And that seems to be increasingly requiring the, the coercive power of the state to enforce that autonomy. If you have a different view of society, one that includes autonomy or values, as, you know, as I said earlier, agency and, and human autonomy, those communities actually spend more time exploring their own tradition, forming their children, forming themselves in ways so that when they encounter these hostilities or they encounter these things, they can react in ways that are in line with their tradition rather than vice versa. And I think in the States, for instance, if you go to the States and you look at, and you ask yourself whether some of those who speak on behalf of Christianity are actually acting in line with what their own tradition teaches, then I think Rod's book and its emphasis on formation over the long run actually makes a lot more sense. So, you know, Cardus isn't going to disappear. We're not going to go retreat. I'm certainly not, even if Cardus were to disappear. And I don't think um, any of my fellow Christian or Jewish or Sikh, you know, for, we had this thing with Cardus called Faith in Canada 150, celebrating the legacy of all faiths in Canada. And we had all, young people there in their 20s, early 20s. And you didn't get the in, impression that, you know, those Baha'i people, those Sikhs, those Jews, those Muslims were intent on sort of fading away into the background or retreating. They were actually quite open about their faith, their desire to serve the common good. And uh, yeah, so that's my response to Rod. Uh, and that's my read of him, or at least my attempt to be charitable in reading him. You mentioned Quebec's Bill 21, Brian, for which you've been an eloquent and passionate critic. Two questions. Why do you oppose the bill? And why, in your view, should Canadians outside, the, outside of the province of Quebec express their opposition to the legislation? I suppose on the deepest level, Sean, I oppose the bill. No, I won't say at the deepest level, but at, at one level that really matters to me, I oppose the bill because it's un-Canadian and, and, and it's, not, it's not Quebecois. So I'll get to the deeper level in, in a minute. But when I look at the, the sort of distinctness of Quebec society, and I think it is distinct. I think obviously the language, its history is different than other parts of you know English Canada and so on. But what's beautiful about it is that it's distinct in part because it is pluralist. Like the the deal that was struck with the Quebec Act, I think it's 1774. I think it's seven. Someone, some historian will correct correct the podcast, and I'll, I'll be thankful for that. But the Quebec Act recognized in a British Empire that actually was deeply uniform with regard to religion. There's an established Anglican religion at the time. It was the first place of Catholic emancipation. It was the first place in which pluralism was baked into a constitutional order. That's the very founding of Quebec in some sense, that the pluralism is baked into that order. And that, that pluralism got baked into our country's order. So pluralism in Quebec first, then Canada second. And so when I see Quebec doing this and working against pluralism, I say, you guys, you're working against your very nature. And, and I have, you know, I love Quebec. I, I want that unique uh, nature of Quebec to be present. And I think also, now I'm getting on to, to a deeper level, Sean, like there's something deeply undemocratic about it in the sense that, I, so if I can say one thing, I actually think Legault is more correct than many liberal scholars and liberal thinkers in Canada think he is. So Legault said the other day, you know, Somebody wearing a hijab to class is the same as wearing somebody wearing a I support the Liberal Party of Canada. Now, clearly it's different in that one is partisan and the other one is not. A hijab is not partisan. But he is getting at the fact that the hijab, insofar as it reflects 
somebody's understanding of modesty and somebody's understanding of proper uh, interaction and engagement with other people does actually have something to say to the public. There's an encounter that has to be had there. Now, you don't have to agree with it. You know, you don't have to agree that the Christian crucifix is, it could be like many rap stars and wear it with absolutely no meaning whatsoever, right? But there's an encounter that has to be, you have to, you have to face it. And I think in that sense, Legault is correct. What I, where I think he's wrong is that Quebecers can't face it. I think Quebecers are actually strong enough, confident enough to face it and to decide for themselves whether they want that for their children. And I think those children themselves can do so as well. So in many sense, it's, I think it's a failure to properly encounter and engage. And if I, this is going to lose me some friends in Quebec, but I actually think it's a sign of a weak, of weakness. If you're relying on the state to enforce something that your citizenry are well-equipped to do in their own right, make decisions about questions around modesty and so on, I actually think it's weak and it's brittle, and it will actually have long-term negative effects that may accomplish exactly the type of thing that they're trying to avoid. And if you look at France, for instance, and it's the sort of like pockets of uh, Islamism and so on, I think there's an extent to which they're actually working against the, the desired end that they have. And that's stated. Do you want to just pick up my second question, Brian? Because I can hear those who disagree with you from Quebec say, well, setting aside your own views, this is a matter to be decided by Quebecers for Quebecers. And English Canada and those outside the province of Quebec shouldn't have an opinion or at least shouldn't have reason to express opposition to what amounts to a provincial decision. So first of all, I would say it is actually for Quebecers to decide. I think it's in, it's critical for them. It's their provincial law. It's not it's not an Ontario or a, or a New Brunswick provincial law. So in that sense, on the very sort of practical basis, it is it is a decision for Quebecers. But we live in a democracy in this country. It's a confederation of a variety of provinces. And as I said, we sort of alluded to the fact that we're all connected to one another in the in the workplace and so on. The same thing is true for us politically that we're connected to one another. And I. You know, what happens in Quebec has implications for the rest of Canada and for both good and ill. You know, there's there's all kinds of good things that emerge out of Quebec that we can copy. And I think there's an extent, there's a sense in which the rest of Canada does have an interest in Quebec, in what's going on in Quebec, just as they have an interest in what's going on in our provinces. We're, you know, this is the business of being a nation. And I was reading Steve Pakin has this great autobi- a great biography of Robarts, the uh, the premier tragic, I think it's called sort of public triumph, uh, private tragedy, very sad story, but the private side. But he talked about how Robarts understood that Quebec was deeply part of Canada and took an interest in that. And actually his involvement with that actually led, he, th- he thinks at least one of the things that Pakin says is that actually helped contribute to a stronger confederation. I think that that's true for us too. We can disagree with one another, but I think it's a huge problem if we're going to if we're just going to say hands off and not have debates with one another about each other's policies. I think it leads to greater estrangement, not greater integration. And I would say that that's something we as Canadians should should not get used to. I don't want Quebec, nor do I want you know Newfoundland and Labrador to go about doing their own thing without concern from the rest of us. We're tied together. We're Canadians, and uh, and it was the first. It was the Canadian, right? And so they're the first Canadians, and so I think it's. I think in that sense, Quebec is Canada. So that's why I think we should have an interest in that. Today's conversation has been with Brian Dykma, Vice President of External Affairs at the Cardis Institute. Brian, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues to share your thoughts and insights on work, on the role of religious pluralism in our society, and of course, how to engage respectfully but directly 
on Quebec's Bill 21. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.